This is the Front Page Podcast from the Red and Black. I'm Alex Antioch, bringing you the 2021 Associated Collegiate Press Clips and Clicks Awards Special Edition episode. Clips and Clicks is a competition honoring student journalism published between August 1st and December 17th, 2021. Today we will be hearing from culture editor Maddie Franklin, whose story, Finding Beauty in Death, A Day in the Life of the Oconee Hill Cemetery Caretakers, that published on November 16th, placed first in the feature writing category. Then, we'll hear from assistant news editor Dania Kalaji, who wrote, UGA professor resigns mid-class after student refuses to wear a mask, that published on August 27th and placed second in the news writing category. Finally, campus news editor Caitlin Farmer will join us to talk about her story, Never Ending. UGA students seek mental health support during in-person semester that published on November 4th and placed third in the feature writing category. Support for this podcast is provided by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership. For more information, visit grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. Hi, Maddie. Congratulations on placing first in feature writing, and thank you so much for joining us for the special edition episode to talk about your story, Finding Beauty in Death, A Day in the Life of the Oconee Hill Cemetery Caretakers. Thank you so much, Alex. It means so much to be here. I'm really happy. Awesome. Well, thank you. We're glad to have you here. For those who are not familiar, what is the cultural significance of the Oconee Hill Cemetery? Yeah, the cultural significance of the cemeteries, it's been around in the Athens community since um, 1800s. Sorry, I don't have the exact date right now, um, but there's lots of notable figures and members of the town. Um, and also it's kind of like noteworthy that they have certain culturally specific sections in the historic part, including African Americans and Native Americans. Um, and it is still operating as a cemetery for people to be buried in today. What brought the story to your attention? Yeah, well, um, we had a a culture, the culture team has a huge doc of um, profile, potential profile subjects, and this was uh, suggested by our newsroom advisor, Charlotte, and one of the ideas was to kind of profile the person who digs the graves at Oconee Hill Cemetery. But then when I was reaching out to the sources at the cemetery, I kind of found that they had this like very tightly knit group that takes care of the grounds. Um, And it was just kind of suggested by the general uh, grounds manager to kind of do less of a profile on him and I kind of wanted to do more of a look at what it what a day in their lives looks like. In the article you mentioned that just four years ago the cemetery was in a state of disarray. Historically it's also had a high turnover rate and has never had a single crew make it through the summer before. What is it about the current team of landscapers that makes it so successful? Yeah, um, I think that was kind of the question, something I didn't know before um, going into the story, and that was something that I wanted to kind of kind of get at with the story is, you know, what is it about this team? And I think 
talking to the four guys there, it was just kind of like they are just really get along really well together. Um, and they have this kind of like respect. I think the heart of it is they all have this respect for the land there and for the people there. And I think they all really want to be there. They all really um, appreciate and honor the jobs that they do and see it as more of a, you know, truly a caretaking role versus just, you know, a landscaping kind of job. Yeah, what is it about this job that's so challenging? And speaking to what you just said, on the flip side, what do the crew members like about their work? Yeah, um, well, something, some challenges that came up was we did this in, or I interviewed them in November. So while it was kind of, you know, approaching winter, um, it was still kind of warm outside, really cold in the mornings, warm later on, and um, there was leaves kind of falling down a bunch. Um, and I think the main, like, biggest challenge and the reason why people don't stay past the summer is the heat. The Georgia heat is just really unbearable. And I think also the kind of, um, not everyone can work in a cemetery, um, just kind of the, the knowledge of knowing that you're going to be working around, you know, people who've died, um, can kind of get under some people's skins. Um, so that was something that came up and as for what they like about it, I think, you know, kind of what I was just speaking about was that these four guys really like, you know, they were, you know, for some reason, they were all really drawn to this line of work, um, even though some of them didn't have landscaping experience before. It was just kind of the environment of the cemetery really spoke to them and, you know, really felt kind of comforting in a way, which, you know, may be shocking to some people, but yeah. Is there anything you learned throughout the course of the day that surprised you? Yeah. One, I was really surprised that they carried a serious, like, demeanor and outlook on their job. And I, I was also really surprised at just the rhythm and the routine that had been established. I think, you know, initially I'd seen, like, some of them, like, walk over the grave um, sites. And I was kind of, like, in my head, I was like, well, wow, they're, they're doing this so casually. You know, it's not even, um, you know, phasing them. They would lean up on some of the things during break times. And it was just all very, they were all very like at peace and just very comfortable there. And that really shocked me. And I even asked them, you know, about this. And I know, um, I think it was Andrew who said that, you know, for the first year or so um, that he was like apologizing every time he stepped on it. And then, you know, when I got there, they were all just so you know, so unfazed by it all. And I think that was really shocking, just the kind of camaraderie that they have with the, even the people that come in. I didn't ever, never would have thought that they would get, you know, thank yous and, you know, this type of genuine, like, appreciation from the family members and people that walk through. Um, that was all, that was all very shocking to me. Looking back now, what was your favorite part of writing and reporting the story? And is there anything you would have done differently? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think 
My favorite part about, I'd never done a story, you know, of this length before. Um, so while that was a challenge, it was something that was exciting to me. And I think the idea of like initially changing my angle from a profile or feature on one person to then deciding to do kind of this, you know, nine to five, not, not in literal terms, but, you know, just looking after their whole day, it was so exciting. And, you know, I know the crew members, they kept saying like, oh, we're boring you, but it was just so nice. I just got to be a little observer in their day. Um, and I don't know, it just made me, it just made me feel like this is what journalism is, you know, just truly, you know, building a bond with someone or, you know, just getting to observe the bond that they had, even if it was for such a short amount of time. So that's something I really loved about reporting on it. And something that I might do differently would have been, um, you know, maybe spending, you know, more time, I think, with um, kind of, I, I interviewed more people than actually I, I ended up putting in the article. But I think I would have liked to maybe um, get a perspective from one of the people that have like a relative um, in the cemetery, um, especially kind of at the end of the article, I mentioned a guy that comes to like read to his late wife. And I think just kind of get having that perspective in maybe a passerby um, as well. And, you know, kind of seeing what it is about this route that makes it so so special for them to come by every day. Um, yeah, I think that's what I would have done differently. Next, Dania Kalaji will discuss her article, UGA professor resigns mid-class after student refuses to wear mask. Hi, Dania. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about your article, UGA professor resigns mid-class after student refuses to wear a mask. And congratulations for placing second in the news story category. Thanks so much, Alex. I really appreciate it. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. Well, to begin, could you please give us a recap of your story? Yeah, sure. So essentially, this story was the beginning of the fall semester at UGA, um, it was in August, actually. So a 88-year-old University of Georgia professor who has, you know, multiple health problems, um, you know, he came back to UGA as a retire, rehiree professor and decided to teach this um, upper division psychology seminar. Um, and essentially what happened on the one of the first days, I think it was actually the second day of class, one of the students did not want to wear a mask. And, you know, when she was given a mask by one of her peers, she didn't wear it properly over her mouth and nose, which is, you know, essentially how most, you know, students wear their masks in class. Um, and the professor, you know, taught under this one rule. You don't have a mask, then there's going to be no class. On his board, he had written in quotations, no mask, no class. And so the student just did not want to wear it properly. And 
once he saw that he had asked her um, twice to, you know, have her mask worn properly. Um, even told students in the classroom that if they didn't have a mask, that they should go over to another UGA building that possibly has masks available to grab one before class begins. Um, so he was pretty clear about his expectations for the class. So after the student, you know, refused to wear it, he just decided to walk straight out of the class. He said, I'm done. I'm not going to teach this if my students are not going to comply with the rules. Um, the interesting thing about the story, though, is that under USG policy, the professors are not supposed to, you know, tell their students and require their students to wear a mask in class. That's just not how the policy runs. So whenever he decided to retire, you know, the people above him in the psychology department, you know, told him that, you know, you cannot tell your students to wear a mask. They're not required to, although it is highly encouraged. So with that, he just decided to leave UGA, um, kind of never looked back, but yeah, that's essentially the, a little recap of the story. On that note, I am curious, what repercussions could the professor have faced for having a mandatory mask policy in the classroom given the USG rules? Right. Um, I think essentially, you know, the people who were above him, you know, telling him that he wasn't allowed to do this. I think if he decided to, you know, ignore those requests and continue to ask his students to wear a mask or require them to wear a mask, then he may have been asked to leave UGA. So I think what he did was just take the other route and leave before he was asked to leave. Why did the red and black choose to not identify the student who refused to wear a mask? And were you able to reach her for comment while working on the story? Right. So approaching the story, it was a very, you know, very quick news story. Um, definitely some breaking news. And whenever we have breaking news here at the red and black, you do have to work really quickly under, you know, a rigorous deadline also making sure that you are telling the story fairly and accurately. And if that's one thing that I took approaching it, I knew that this girl who decided you know, not to wear the mask and essentially caused the problem um, in this case um, was a key component of the story. She could have been a key source. But when you think of it down the road, and this is something that a lot of journalists and, you know, a lot of student journalists have to think about, um, are the repercussions of different sourcing. And I knew that if I had her name, which I, I probably could have found um, during the writing process, whether that was access to a class list or even the girl that I interviewed in the story who was one of the classmates um, who experienced this and witnessed it. I could have asked them for her name, and I'm sure they would have given it to me, but putting her name in the story just made me feel a little bit uncomfortable, and I think um, it could have essentially, how do I say this, maybe like ruined her life a little bit. I didn't want this to have you know, consequences down the line in her life. 
Um, and that is something that you have to battle with every day. Am I going to mention her name so that everyone online can see that and everyone can go back to years from now? Or am I going to keep her name out of it and just focus on the problem at cause, which is this UGA professor resigned because the student did not want to wear her mask properly. And I think that that's exactly, you know, how it ended up. And I don't regret not mentioning her name. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are curious as to who she is, but as a writer, you know, as a student journalist, I thought that it was best to just keep um, her as a source out of the story. That's a lot to unpack. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, did you have to, uh, were there any other ethical considerations you needed to go over while putting this together? Um, I think, you know, a lot of it was focused on this particular student who did not want to wear the mask and that decision between mentioning her name and not mentioning her name. Um, definitely whenever I was writing the story, I wasn't aware that, you know, UGA followed the USG policy regarding masks. So hearing that from the professor was definitely something very interesting that I definitely want to include in the story. But another thing about this story that's really interesting is that because it was breaking news, um, identifying your sources at the very beginning of the writing process is really key. And I knew that I absolutely wanted to have the UGA professor's voice in this. And upon reaching out to him initially, he didn't want to engage in any phone calls or, you know, have a conversation face-to-face -face about this because it was very raw for him. Um, this just happened, and he didn't even know what was, I guess, going through his head. So something that we had to do was conduct the interview via email. Um, and as a journalist, I think that is one thing that you kind of have to tackle down from the beginning in the process. Like, you want to have the interview in person. That is what's best. But sometimes when there's particular situations like this, um, you know, email might be the best route to go. So I had to conduct the interview with him um, via email, which meant, you know, sending questions to him beforehand. But I understood the situation he was in completely, and I did not want to make him uncomfortable at all. I wanted to approach the story as in, well, there is a human outlook to this. You know, he resigned, yes, that is newsworthy, but he's also a human. Um, and he, you know, came out of his way to, out of retirement, to teach this upper seminar class, upper psychology seminar class. So I really wanted that human element um, in the story. And I think that was, you know, one of the ethical concerns that I had to face. But I think when you read the story, you can really get a sense of that. That's definitely a lot to consider. Um, for our audience who might not be aware of, I guess, standard journalism practice, why do you, why is an email interview generally not like the ideal way to talk to someone? Right. So whenever you do want to conduct an interview, um, the questions that you ask your source, you know, are, you know, questions that you prepare beforehand and you know exactly what you're going to ask. But the thing about asking the questions to your source is that 
they don't know what you're going to ask them. So when you do provide the questions to your source beforehand, um, before the interview or via email, they're able to, you know, develop an answer that, you know, might be like too much PR or if there is you know, a particular situation that could have some consequences if they say the wrong thing, then they know exactly how to formulate their answers. So I think that was the one thing that I was a little bit concerned about um, approaching this story. But I made sure that, you know, my questions were, you know, very straightforward. Like, what happened? You know, why did you decide to leave? What exactly happened when you walked out? Where did you go? very just direct questions that could just get, you know, really easy answers from the professor. I just really wanted um, like a clear and concise like sequence of what happened and, you know, everything afterwards. Yeah. Um, and I guess kind of speaking to um, the events of the story, in, in the story you mentioned that the class was an upper level class and a lot of students needed it to graduate. Were the students who needed the class to complete their degree able to enroll in another course to complete the requirement during fall semester? Yes, they were. So immediately after the professor left the class and resigned, UGA was able to put different students in other upper division seminars so that they would be able to graduate and have that credit. Um, but one of the things that I thought was interesting is that some of the students, like Hannah Huff, the girl I talked to in the stories mentioned, she was moved to an 8 a.m. class. And whenever you're a senior, you know, you're trying to finish up your coursework and you're trying to, you know, kind of get your life together. And 8 a.m. is, you know, not the most ideal situation to be in. Um, but, yeah, they were all able to get moved to different classes. All right. And final question. Why do you think it was important to report the story? Right. So reporting the story honestly, for me, um, was a key moment in my journalistic career. Definitely as a student journalist here at the Red and Black. It, whenever I heard about it, it was obviously, you know, mind-boggling to me that this happened. And I knew that, you know, informing our local community that these things happen and that, you know, these stories are, you know, not just things that you overhear. This happened here at UGA, and this is probably happening, you know, nationwide at other universities. And I think that was one of the best parts of the story is that it resonated so far beyond UGA and so far beyond Athens. Um, and it even made national news and was featured and quoted in stories from the New York Times and the Washington Post and, you know, people.com. It, it definitely showed that it is an important topic that needs to be talked about more often. And I'm glad that it was able to, you know, start a conversation, you know, start opening people's minds up to the consequences that can happen, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, when you're not wearing your mask properly. Our final guest this week is Caitlin Farmer, here to talk about her piece, Never Ending. UGA students seek mental health support during in-person semester. 
Hi, Caitlin. Congratulations on placing third in the feature story category, and thank you so much for joining me to discuss your article. Thank you so much for having me. What types of mental health challenges did students experience in the fall, and how are they different from those of previous semesters? I think that in the fall, there was just a different set of expectations on students and things that students needed to do or things for them to even readjust to that weren't around previously and before the pandemic. So I think a lot of the issue faced by students in the fall was that we went from not having much of anything going on or things being virtual and you not really leaving like your home to kind of being almost like pushed back into society, especially with school going back in person and a lot of people not giving you the option to do class online. And so I think that people ran into an issue of just being like stressed out and burnt out and overworked and just exhausted and anxious and all these other things because we all went from being like isolated and being in our homes and having everything around us that we need and like we just got so used to working and living in our personal space that once we were pushed back out into society I think people took on more than they probably could handle but it was just, I think everyone was so ready to get back out that they just overcommitted to a lot of things. And so that's kind of a common theme that came up in a lot of my interviews was just a lot of students needing help with time management and kind of deciding like what things should I walk away from because everyone was just so ready to get back to work that they just took on way too much. Although UGA has on-campus mental health resources like CAPS and the Office of Student Outreach, why did students, or why do students choose to access off-campus resources? Yeah, so I think the main issue with CAPS that was brought up and other kind of on-campus resources like that is just the wait times are not practical for what help is being sought. I think a lot of people taking the step to go seek help and counseling is a very big step and it can be hard just to even get there and it can be even harder when you do get there and you're told that you can't be seen for a month or however long it may be and I think that a lot of them go seek resources elsewhere just because you don't want to have to wait to be helped with issues like these, especially if you're ready to seek the help. I feel like it's not something that you kind of just want to like sit around and wait on, nor should you because your mental health is very important. But I think a lot of them saw outside resources just because there's more accessibility to doctors, maybe not necessarily with the pay and everything, but like with in regard to like the wait times and how long it takes to get in and get an initial appointment. The doctors and the counselors and therapists are all 
way more accessible when they're removed from the university. But at the same time, you then have to go and figure out, you know, if they take your insurance or if they take insurance at all, or if you have to pay upfront in cash, like all these different things that each counselor and therapist in Athens has like a different parameter on. And CAPS has waived the fees, which is kind of why it's like a 50-50 toss-up, I guess. It's like you could go to CAPS and get help for free and wait a really long time for it, or you could go seek help elsewhere, but potentially have to come a good amount of money out of pocket for it. Yeah, it seems like most of the mental health professionals you spoke to were pretty busy. Um, How did... Did this affect the process of finding sources and scheduling interviews? Yeah, definitely. There were a lot of people that I contacted who either took a few days to get back even after some follow-ups, and when they did, they gave me a date like two weeks out that they were available to talk. Um, And then there were just a lot of people that never called me back, that never picked up, that never emailed back, and the few that did that I spoke to, um, they definitely said to just, which is kind of what I gathered in my time spent trying to find people to talk to is that everyone is just so busy because it's become so much more of a normal thing to seek help. And a lot of people are looking for it, especially now after the last few years that we've had and all of the different hardships that everyone has had to face in some way, um, that everyone's just so overwhelmed with work and it definitely affected the process of just finding people to talk to for this because there were so many people that just weren't available. This has been The Front Page. The Front Page is a production of the Red and Black Publishing Company. You can find the stories discussed in this episode in the paper edition or on our website at redandblack.com. Make sure to download our app and keep up with us on social media. We hope to see you next week.